Welcome to episode 133, Imposter Syndrome, Therapy, and Effectiveness. Do we still need theory anymore? Featuring Dr. Diane Gayhart, licensed marriage and family therapist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I am delighted today to be joined by Dr. Diane Gayhart. Uh, Dr. Gayhart is a professor of marriage and family therapy at California State University, Northridge, and she also has a private practice. Many of you may know her because she is an avid writer and, and has written quite a few books about the practice of psychotherapy. Thank you so much for joining us today, Diane. It's delightful to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So before we dive into this really interesting topic about theory and imposter syndrome and the effectiveness of therapy. Why don't you tell our listeners about yourself and about your practice and how you came to be doing this kind of work? Okay. Well, I have been a professor in counseling and family therapy um, for about 25 years. It's a long time. And early in my career, um, you know, when I moved to California back in the day, there used to actually be a oral exam to get your license. And um, you had to do an oral treatment plan that was theory specific, right? And there was no textbook to do that. So my textbooks actually came out of trying to prepare students for this because you go through the literature and it, it just wasn't there. And it was bizarre that it was required for the licensing exam. So that's kind of where I started writing textbooks to help my students pass their exams. And and I got into it. I, I think now I'm the only person out there who has um, both a both family therapy, you know, a major family therapy and a major counseling theory textbook that is sole authored. So I have spent most of my career um you know, doing a deep dive into counseling and MFT theories. And it's totally my passion. Your love of theory kind of leads us to our conversation today. When I had reached out to you about doing this episode, and by the way, for our listeners, uh, Dr. Gayhart has another episode with us. I encourage you to look that one up. But when I reached out to you, you and I were exchanging messages talking about this idea of the complexity of doing therapy this day and age. There are so many theories and it's so hard to sift through everything and know what you're supposed to do in the room. Why don't we start right there and you can kind of expand on that concept of this complexity, especially for newer clinicians, but for all clinicians when we're getting bombarded by evidence-based practices. Absolutely. And I've, you know, when I started in the field, okay, my first degree is a a, um, KCREP master's degree in counseling. I learned about eight, nine, maybe theories, but about, you know, that's what I had to learn for my master's. And then I went and got a doctorate from a co- it's a co-empty doctorate, right? So now I'm learning about eight major family therapy theories. I mean, back then it ended at solution focused, like narrative and collaborative were just like on the cutting edge. They were evolving. They were not in textbooks. That's how old I am. Um, so, and then, and so fast forward to today, um, at my university, the chancellor, you know, required that the MFT separate from the counseling degree. Um, so I had to write a new degree. It is now 72 units. It's about one of the longest, um, I mean, the largest number of units of an MFT program that I know pretty much maxes out at the master's level. And um, and so I'm preparing them for licensure in California. So I have to get, what is it? It's about 
15, 16 theories on that exam. And then I had to prepare them for a co-ampty. It's like we are co-ampty accredited. That's the AMFT accreditation body. Make sure we get all the theories that co-ampt wants. And then I need to make all the employers, you know, in the Los Angeles area happy, which is like a totally different, unrelated set of theories. It's nuts. So my students are learning about 25 theories in two and a half years, over 72 units. And when they're done, they are actually exceptionally well-trained. I have an incredible faculty. It's a great cutting edge, you know. But so when they're done, they, they've been trained or learned about 25 theories. They feel totally confused. They feel like imposters. They are, they feel totally lost. They don't know where to start. And it's like, it's this weird paradox, but like they are better trained than I was when I came out of my program, my master's degree. And yet they feel less competent than ever. They're totally lost. They don't know where to start. And I really think it comes down to we have, uh, what are they supposed to, what are you supposed to do with 25 theories? <laughs> and so I think they just come up at the other end totally confused. And there's this huge disconnect between what the, what's on the licensing exam and what the employers want you to do in terms of evidence-based work in an agency type setting. And then the licensing, both national and um, in California, just different exams everywhere. Um, again, they, they're going back to these very classic theories. So it's a really, I think it's a terrible way to train professionals in the 21st century. As you talk about that, I'm thinking about the difference between these two concepts that we're talking about theory to explain and conceptualize behavior and relationships and thoughts and feelings and values. And then how little on the other end, we talk about the actual practice of therapy, and that there's so much space there for disconnect. Um, for you and your role, knowing so many evidence based practices, what are the drawbacks of all these EBPs, particularly when you see these newer clinicians just getting hit with all of these acronyms to know DBT and MI and EMDR and XYZ and keep going? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, the drawback is they're totally overwhelmed and no one is connecting um, the, the dots. And I think when you, I mean, for someone like me who has, I, I literally, when I write my textbooks, I, I, I get every single thing that the major founders of that theory, everything they've written, I, I've gone through it all. So I'm really, I, I'm very well-versed, unusually well-versed in theory. And so, so for me, like when I look at, you know, um, for example, EFT, Emotionally Focused Couples Therapy, I'm like, okay, so she does the MRI assessment. Um, she does the structural, you know, enactments. Um, she does a lot of the kind of um, humanistic, you know, the stuff with emotion. And so I can categorize it. I'm not totally overwhelmed. I can see the, when I look at functional family therapy, I'm like, well, actually functional family therapy has done a phenomenal job, I think, uh, doing the structural assessment. Even it's easier to use than what Mnuchin did, right? You know, but then he does CBT interventions. So when I look at it, I can, I can see the, how the parts connect. Um, and, you know, I think one of the worst things is, is that there's this whole vocabulary thing and everyone's got to rename it, call it something different. And so it's like, and when you study for the, because I'm running right now a, a laugh your way to licensure class. And, you know, one of the biggest things I tell folks is like, the theory questions are largely a vocabulary test. You know, you have to know that solution focused did exceptions and narrative did unique outcomes, or you're not going to pass the exam. But when you're in the room, you're doing the exact same thing. It's like almost the same questions. And so, 
you know, it's, it's very, very, it's a mess. It's a mess for someone trying to wade into a world where they're literally, I think, four to 500 recognized, you know, treatments by SAMHSA. So it's just this sea. And my students go out and get trained in treatments I've never even heard of, you know. So that also adds like total confusion to this whole mix. From your perspective, kind of being up in the sky, looking down at this and not looking down on it, but looking down and recognizing how these pieces fit together and where they don't. I hear clinicians talk about the phenomenon of imposter syndrome all the time. Can you speak about, number one, what that is for the people who don't know, and number two, how you see all of these pieces fitting together in terms of that phenomenon of imposter syndrome for clinicians? Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's funny, in my my generation, you know, no one talked about feeling like an imposter. Um, And I really think this uh, imposter syndrome is direct. So imposter syndrome, I, I forgot to define it, is a sense that you feel like you're a fraud in some way, especially as a professional. So you feel like you don't know enough, your supervisor's going to figure it out, your clients are going to figure out like, how, how did I end up in this room giving people advice type thing? So, um, so that is what imposter syndrome is. And and so I, I think so many people are experiencing imposter syndrome because, you know, when I actually entered the field, um, and so I started my graduate program, it was 1993, I'm do some math, figure out how old I am, um, you know, you could do a comprehensive literature review on many topics. I remember when I first started doing my mindfulness and Buddhist psychology, like there were eight existing articles, <laughs> something crazy like that, you know. And now if you put mindfulness into psych info, you're going to get thousands. I mean, thousands, ten, probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions, right? So there's, so the knowledge base of the field has just exploded and it is impossible to keep up. So no matter what you know, and this is even true for me, no matter what I know, there's always something out there and someone talking about something that you've never heard of before. And so even though my students get trained, let's say, in 25 different therapy models, which is, you know, phenomenal. I know we get great feedback from employers. They love our students because they, they have a strong foundation and it's a rigorous program. So but the students end up at, at their um, employer who's adopted some EVP, right, that um, we didn't cover in the program. So they just automatically at that point begin to feel like, oh, I've never heard that, you know, oh my God, oh my God, you know, am I good enough? Am I, am I going to be able to do this? <clears throat> and it's not that the student hasn't been well-trained. It's that it is an impossible amount of information to keep up with. It is a full-time job. And I, I remember it was about, I don't know, 15-ish years ago where I really felt like it really became clear to me that I will never be able to keep up with the um, the knowledge in the field because now we've got all the brain research, right, uh, that we need to know and the theories and now we have evidence-based practices and outcome research, you know, has gotten so much better than when I started. There wasn't, there wasn't, the outcome research on psychotherapy was so vague, it couldn't actually guide you in session. And it has improved so much the um, that now, you know, there's all this outcome research, you know, on top of the EVPs that we need to keep up with. So, there's just way too much information. And unfortunately, when you're new, you feel, you know, like a fraud. Um, and it's funny, right? I, I'm teaching. I have begun to think about retirement. And I live in California where 
Um, we've had a lot of fires, not a lot of water. Um, and truly, it was about um, last, last fall, we had three weeks in Southern California of smoky skies from the fires in Northern California. Which really hit me in a str- after three, it's the third year of major fires where I, in the area where I live in, uh, I'm outside of Los Angeles. Um, and I just said, okay, I need an escape plan. So I decided I want to go to Hawaii and I looked into it because, um, and I would have to take the national exam. So I decided that was just hilarious. And then I said, who better to teach? So let's let's do a class. So I'm running a, a laugh your way to licensure class, and it's you know one of the and part of the the thing is um, I'm taking a mock exam, and you know students are watching me make mistakes, you know, and think through the exam and talk through the exam, and one everyone is saying in the class what they love about it is that if, you know, if Diane Gayhart's missing the question and I'm missing the same one, I feel pretty good about that, and it's just confidence boosting to see that. You know, even how they present the information, even with everything I know, I can still make mistakes. I still don't know it all. And it's really helping with their imposter syndrome to watch me make mistakes. And I I think, you know, it takes at least, I think for most people, it takes about 10 years to really get the confidence that you know what you're doing, you know. And so, and I think this all plays into imposter syndrome and in the sense of so many of the people in the first, you know, early career, first 10 years, or even post-licensure people have imposter syndrome. It goes on and on and on. And um, and so it really is a problem because I think it keeps people from, without that confidence that you're able to help, it really zaps so much of your energy that could be going to much better things. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a real problem. You mentioned something that I thought was really interesting, and that was the idea that the lack of confidence is actually inhibiting the process in the room. So if therapists are feeling anxious and uncomfortable about just holding space in the room, that that could play out in an unfortunate way for the outcomes. Can you talk about the outcomes and confidence and some of that research? Because what I see in my role, and for our listeners who don't know this, I'm a feedback-informed treatment uh, trainer. I see how much all of these elements come together and how it impacts how we actually show up in the room, which is kind of eerie when you consider that that's a fundamental and foundational part of effective psychotherapy. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, you can look at just the common factors research, right? The number one factor, you know, that affects clinical outcome is the relationship, you know, and that's the big, that's more more than theory. And we're so over-focused on theory. And, you know, we really do a poor job, I think, of really looking at the self of the clinician and how that affects outcomes, um, there's actually uh, research, uh, Bowenian research uh, in intergenerational therapy, where they look at the differentiation of the therapist and how that affects clinical outcomes. There's also some fascinating research that clinicians who are not taking care of their depression and their anxiety have uh, their outcomes are about 40% less or worse than um, clinicians who aren't struggling with their own kind of mental health issues. And it's interesting. Um, okay, so I've been an educator. It is. Oh, it's, it's, you know, the whole self of the therapist thing, I think we do a really poor job in dealing with it. And I I know as a professor and the rules of the university, you can't get people, you can't get too personal. You can't get it. You can't do something. Obviously you can't do therapy with your students. Um, 
And so it's an academic place and we're, you know, at my university, we're only supported, you know, because we're at a big state school, right? We're not at a, I know the professional schools have a different thing where their administrators are psychologists and therapists and understand it all. Um, So at my school, if it's not academic, they will not support us in like slowing a, you know, student down in their program type of thing. So the universities are all hands off uh, around a lot of the self of the therapist issues um, and it's for legal reasons, quite frankly, it's really legal issues. Um, and I, I think strangely that most of our theories do a very poor job. And even though we talk a lot about self-care and self of the therapist and all that stuff, there's no roadmap for doing that. And so, you know, when I train folks outside of the university in my, in my, the when I train folks in, in how to do therapy, the first place I start is getting yourself dealing with your whatever it is and, and, and getting yourself in a better place as a human being, you know, getting yourself to be able to what's, you know, identify a problem, figure out how you're going to solve it, implement it and follow through on that is so it's an essential life skill and if you can't do that sort of to get you know continually work on yourself in that way it's a lifelong journey i've been i've been working on myself since i started and i still find things to keep working on and i think the personal life of the therapist of a clinician is so um important to actually being effective in the room when you think about authenticity and genuineness um, that is because you know who you are and you've done your own work and you can show up like that. And just being able to show up in that way is, is I think, half of what we need to do in the room. And it's like no one talks about it in a meaningful way other than go home and do some self-care, get some therapy, you know, and, and it's this really vague type of thing. And so I really think we aren't doing enough work um, in that area. And we need to find better ways to address that type of issue. What's interesting in what you just shared about that idea of the impact of clinician mental health conditions affecting client outcomes. As you and I record this, we are at the end of June in 2021. So we're still in the COVID-19 pandemic. And clinicians are as affected as the rest of the world by the losses and the grief and the isolation and the, you know, trying to figure out what normal means now, all of that. And I've wondered, actually, how much has that impacted just simply the quality of therapy? On the flip side, also the the experience of shared trauma with clients and the value of authenticity. Um, so Dr. Gayhart and I both live in the same community that has been rocked by these wildfires, also by the borderline bar shooting. And so we have been in the position where we are experiencing traumas alongside of our clients, which um, a lot of communities may not have until the pandemic, where you're going through similar challenges. But so I've, I've wondered that very concept of how effective has therapy been? Has it been more effective because we are um, almost stripped of our posturing, if you will, our clinical posturing, and have to show up authentically? Or has it made us less effective because we're also, I mean, really depressed? therapists are just as anxious and depressed as the rest of the population. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think there's a real mix of both, you know, and I think everyone, what's fascinating about the pandemic is that it's one stressor that has had totally different 
um, effects on people's lives. You know, those of us who are um, parents, working parents, um, you know, it has all been about homeschooling and getting your kids, you know, education while trying to work. It has been just a three ring circus, you know. And then I know other people who don't have kids um, who, if you're able to comfortably work from home, you know, they're worried about, you know, they're bored and isolated. You know, it's a totally different, totally different types of stressors. And so, and I think how a person handles stress um, also really affects uh, some of this. And so, and so I, I've seen some therapists actually thrive might be a strong term, but really show resilience and, and use this to energize them to be helpful. You know, this is the one thing I can do is treat the trauma that's going on and be authentic and show up. And then there are others where they've just been totally flattened by it. So I think there's a whole range of how people have responded. There is research that shows that um, age is a major factor and that uh, folks in their 20s, you know, early early adults, early age adults, 30 or maybe early 30s-ish, uh, actually were hit much harder psychologically than um, people in their 40s, 50s, and older. Um, so there is an age factor because it's like you're start trying to start your life and everything just got put on hold type of thing. So when we're talking about this imposter syndrome phenomenon, whether that's occurring with newer clinicians or with more seasoned clinicians, what do you see as the antidote for that? You know, the I think the antidote is getting really, I mean, getting a realistic, you know, picture of what a skilled, competent clinician is and does, because I think people have these very idealistic views um, of, of what they should know, what they shouldn't know. Um, so I think that's one part of it. And then I think the other part of it is really developing very consciously um, your own kind of personal growth journey so that you feel good about you. Because the other reasons, so, I mean, there's, so there are two different reasons people have um, or contributing factors, I might say, to um, uh, imposter syndrome. One is feeling like I need to know all this knowledge. So we've been talking a lot about that. The other is this sense of, oh my God, I don't, you know, I have the same problems my clients have, or I have these issues. So I'm not, you know, so personally you feel like, how could I be an expert in mental health when I have all my own issues as well? My relationships are a mess or I have depression, anxiety, you know, whatever it's been. So, um, so there are two and often both of those are playing out, you know, in one person at the same time, but those are the two reasons. So related to having imposter syndrome, because you, um, don't know, you feel like there's just more you need to know. It's like come up with a really solid way of how you're going to train. And it just really depends on what your environment is, you know, where you're working. Um, but come up with a solid plan and get good training. You do need to invest in training. I have always, um, if you are, you, in the first 10 years of your career, there is money that needs to be put into getting really a solid training. But it, and it varies dramatically depending on what your work context is. But then on the other side is you do need to really be working on yourself very consistently, very consciously, you know, and, and being honest with yourself. You know, are you in an unhealthy relationship? You know, you need to, you know, figure that out and get it to a good place. Because if your imposter syndrome is when you sit down with a client, you're like, God, that's all happening in my life, too. And you're not doing anything about it. 
that is in some ways a, a valid form of imposter syndrome. You need to deal with it. And I, I think, um, and I think on the personal side, I, I think it's wrong to think you have to be perfect. Like your life, therapists, counselor lives, clinician lives, our lives are not perfect because we do this work. You know, life still happens to us. Um, we still have our own struggles. You know, most of us come to the field because we've struggled with depression or anxiety or a family member has, you know, had some severe mental illness or whatever it is, or we ourselves have a severe mental illness, right? So we all come usually because we've had some of these experiences or, and so, and that's okay. It makes you a great clinician, but you need to deal with it. You really need to work on it consistently and if you aren't dealing with it, then you're going to feel like an imposter. Because in some ways, in that case, I would say you are. So that that doing your own work is really an, a key part for some people around the imposter syndrome. One of the things that I hear come up about clinical imposter syndrome is a phenomenon of working with a client and whatever you're doing as a clinician isn't working, or at least that's what you feel in the room that you've tried XYZ interventions and different theoretical approaches and that the person that you're working with or the family or the couple or whoever it is is still experiencing whatever issue it was that brought them into therapy to begin with and the sense of lack of effectiveness. I'm curious for you as a seasoned supervisor and teacher, how do you approach that idea of that sense of lack, lack of efficacy and our own desire to have an influence on our clients and how that puts pressure on us that may actually inhibit the effectiveness of our work. Yeah, yeah, that is an interesting one. It's a complex one, too. You know, I, um, I what I, I, so for me, it always, almost always comes down to conceptualization of some, you know, and figuring out, you know, if, if therapy isn't working, you're missing a piece. <laughs> You know, so you don't, something isn't, you know, I mean, I guess there are some clients who um, have a lot more difficulty changing. The one that first comes to mind is uh, personality disorders um, are going to be much slower. But, you know, if you assess that and conceptualize and understand what's going on with that, then you should set realistic expectations is what I would say. Um, but other than, you know, this is sometimes it's the client, but usually it's we've missed a piece of the pie, so a piece of it somehow. And so having um, a really broad conceptualization is, you know, stepping back and looking at what am I missing? What piece isn't there? Another thing I have found um, is, and I, is I, there's a medical piece often that people are missing is what I have discovered. And so, um, you know, I... I often work with functional medicine doctors when therapy is not working to rule out very subtle uh, medical. It could be a food sensitivity, you know. It can be, um, you know, an MTHFR gene mutation that affects um, the myelination of, of nerves, and that's a B12 vitamin. You know, just need a special type, a methyl B12, whatever. So um, often there can be a medical piece that's missing when therapy isn't working, but it should work. And so it's funny, I, I have started an institute called, you know, the Institute for Therapy that works, because that's really my, um, it's really in some ways, the bottom line is what I'm doing working. And I see so many people who are just, it's almost like their theory is their religion. And, and it's like, if your theory isn't working, then you need to step back, reassess, you know, and figure out what works. And I, I never stop, if a client's willing to keep working with me, I never stop working to figure out what is the missing piece. 
So, so the two things that are not standard in conceptualization that I typically will have to add is either a functional medicine or something that I will call a brain-based intervention, um, which is like neurofeedback or EMDR, even mindfulness, you know, that actually gets to some brain stuff. Um, So those are often, if you're really stuck, those two things can sometimes um, help in a way if the talk therapy isn't working. But usually you just need to have a broader conceptualization. Um, I think when it feels like something isn't working. I appreciate that perspective. And I've experienced the same in my work that as mental health professionals, I think, you know, given our training, we organize things through systems theory or whatever case conceptualization. Mm -hmm. And I remember in school, that idea of the importance of asking somebody when's last time you had a physical, when's last time you had blood work, but that as we're moving along in therapy, it's really easy to forget that medical piece. And consistently, I find exactly the same thing, that there's an underlying medical condition that may be contributing or a iron deficiency or whatever it is. And so that idea of trying to view the whole person instead of just the therapy component and how I mean, we have another podcast episode um, that is really interesting looking at the gut-brain axis and the impact Mm -hmm. of diet on mental health and exercise on mental health and all of these things. And so for us as therapists to know where our lane is, but to also be able to zoom out and appreciate how these other lanes may be contributing to what's happening in our lane, to the traffic over here. Um, I'm glad you brought up that point. Yeah, absolutely. You got to do what works. And yes, it's a big if you really want to have good outcomes, you have to have a very broad lens. So talk to me more about this idea of outcomes. How do you define a positive outcome in therapy? And then how do you translate that to something that seems approachable and manageable instead of just pressure? I mean, I think any adolescent therapy uh, or any adolescent therapist knows the experience of a family walking in, plunking the the child down on the couch and saying, fix my kid. And you go, whoa, <laughs> all of a sudden there's this pressure and you're seeing it from a systems perspective going, it's a lot more than just me teaching your child about deep breathing or understanding their anger. <laughs> um, so for you, how do you kind of conceptualize these ideas of improving outcomes and how therapists can relate to that in a way that isn't uh, inhibiting the quality of their work? Huh, that is a, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I, this, uh, I, I'm just going to say this. I hope this doesn't sound terrible, but like I, I fully expect, I mean, my clients experience improvement. They, they, you know, they're going to change. And I, I know that I'm going to, I have a process that helps people change. And so I have a lot of confidence. Um, in, in that I, I've, you know, developed a system for myself that really creates positive outcomes. And the positive outcomes is, you know, obviously, whatever they came in concerned about, they, they're feeling better about in whatever way, you know, whatever it is, whether it's mood, whether it's, you know, intrapsychic or interpersonal. Um, that, and there's a progress, there's a movement um, that you see. And I really, I don't just look at the behavioral level, I really focus on them uh, shifting internally is really like that it's it, it's organic within them. You know, one of the things I've been developing, kind of a method trying to explain how I work uh, in this new course I've been teaching, it's um, one of the things that really has stood out to me is that I, when I use theories, I kind of turn them inside out. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it, but I take the theory and uh, when, when I work with clients, um, I, I approach kind of relating with them in a very kind of postmodern, collaborative, 
um, way. And I think of that often. One of the metaphors I use to explain how to do that work is it's like entering the client's holodeck. And if you remember the holodeck from Star Trek, right? You walk in and there's this artificial world. And so it's like when you enter the client, I literally enter the client's world and and I try to leave all of my assumptions and connections, you know, outside the holodeck door. And I walk in and I have to have them explain to me. It's almost like I am a blind person inside the holodeck and they have to explain what's there, how the pieces fit together, what they mean. And so, so once I understand how their holodeck is organized, which is their way of understanding the world, their interpretive way, their way of interpreting and making sense of their lives, you know, what's happening in their lives, what's actually there, the kind of behaviors and then their interpretation of it. It's like, then I have to take the theoretical concepts and the knowledge of the field and figure out how it works from within their holodeck, not from outside the professional, like my holodeck, my holodeck isn't going to, what works in my holodeck doesn't work in their holodeck. So I have to enter their world see how those how they make sense how the pieces fit together and then it's like i can run out to my bookshelf of all my theories and professional knowledge and research and outcome studies and figure out how that knowledge fits into their holodeck world and so to me it feels like i take theories and i turn them inside out so it's not like theories are written for clinicians for us to look at clients but they work best when you take them and you turn them inside out and you use it from within the client's world view is this making sense? It is making sense. And for our listeners, so I can see Dr. Gayhart as, as we're having this conversation. And so, but she's using your hands to kind of show this idea. And so am I, even as I say it, this idea of this external world, that there's a world that's outside of us that the client describes for us and conceptualizes. And then we basically get to see it. We get to be invited into that world, but can relate to it differently because it's not our world. And I also noticed, uh, Diane, when you were talking, that little note in the recognition that that is not our holodeck, that Mm -hmm. we have a different holodeck. And the idea that going back to like, boundaries and things like that. But that idea of recognizing kind of the difference between therapist and client, the difference between two people in the room and the space in between them, you had talked about that concept of therapist, um, self of therapist, and Mm -hmm. kind of these this awareness of therapist in the room. So I appreciate your example of the holodeck, because to me, it's then this living, breathing hologram that we can manipulate and spin around and use in the room to relate to it differently than they might be doing when they're interacting with their family or they're walking down the street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, I, so I think the original question you were asking was, what do you do when you don't have outcomes? You know, and, and usually I get curious. I mean, at the end of the day, I get curious about what there's some part of this holodeck I'm missing. I don't know what's something. There's something else here. It could be a health issue. It could be a brain issue. It could be, I don't know, a secret affair. It could be substance use. I don't know. But there's some part of the holodeck I'm not getting because I fully believe everyone's holodeck makes sense. You know, and, and even if you're dealing with someone with psychosis, um, there is a logic to psych. There, it is coherent in its world. And you need to put aside all of the dominant kind of assumptions uh, and understand how the logic, even of psychosis, makes sense when you enter their holodeck. There is a logic to it. And you just have to get really, really curious. You've spent so much time thinking about these ideas. 
when you're trying to sift through it, and you just used the example of the holodeck, how do you simplify the alphabet soup that is doing therapy this day and age? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so what I have done is I've created a, I don't even know what to call it. Honestly, I've been talking to people, surveying people like, I don't know what to, what to call it. But it, I think the word that I'm calling it, it's a method, but it's like a synthesis. It is like boiling down. Anyone who cooks, if you ever make a simmer sauce, right, you boil it down. If you make tomato sauce, you start with fresh tomatoes, you keep boiling and boiling till it's like this, you know, thick tomato sauce. And so that's how I think of it. It's not integration because integration is like taking pieces. But we all have that phenomenon where we learn a new theory and we're like, hey, this sounds a lot like X theory. Mm -hmm. And you raise your hand, you ask the trainer, isn't this sort of like X theory? And they're like, oh, no, no, this is totally different. It's nothing like X theory, you know, and um, we've all had that experience. And so it's it's like I live in two different worlds. It's so bizarre because when I teach the licensing course, I get into like, it's like split hairs, you know, exceptions versus unique outcomes, totally different. And in what I call my, uh, you know, therapy that works course, it is like, let's simmer it down. Let's take away all, I take away all the theoretical language. You know, I certainly built on theory, it cannot not be built on theory, but I take it all away because it messes people up. It messes people up to have all these theoretical terms. And I'm like, let me, I'm just going to tell you what to do. <laughs> and I'm going to tell it to you in language that you don't need a master's degree to understand. Like to the main intervention starts with get the movie, a behavioral description in the holodeck, you know, pretend like you're blind in that holodeck, have them describe what they're seeing and then get the interpretation. How do they interpret it? You don't need a master's degree to do that. And if you can learn how to do that, that is like 80%, I think of what works and what really shifts things. Because as you enter their world. First of all, you're not making terrible assumptions. And another is that um, you understand how their mind works. And I think that's a big piece that we don't talk a lot about in our field. Like I really, when I'm listening to my clients and I'm trying to understand how they interpret their world, um, I, I, I get, I've gotten really good at understanding how their mind makes meaning and their process of meaning making. So I, I think learning to um, boil down all of these concepts, get out of the theoretical language. There are a few, there's sometimes I have to get into it. You certainly have to describe, you know, evidence-informed treatment as is based on research, but getting away from that and just describing it very simply. And I, I think of it this way, all the physicians I know, and a couple of my cousins are surgeons, you know, when they learn to do surgery, right? They, they learn a set of techniques and interventions. They learn what to do. They don't get a ton of theory and all of this heavy stuff and heavy language that we get. They just, they learn what to do. And it is all been guided by some theory, right? It's all been guided by some research, but they learn a method. And I think our field needs to move towards that because it is like, you know, alphabet soup and total confusion to be trying to work with a client going, what theory should I use? Um, like that is a very bad question to have in your head during a session. But I think a lot of people have it because we, mm -hmm. we have not developed very clear methods that are synthesized, that are simple, that are clear. And, you know, one of the things my students in my course are like, 
oh my God, this is, this is so simple. I'm like, yeah, it actually isn't rocket science doing good psychotherapy. It is fairly simple. And our profession has made it so complex. And I, I think it's, it's actually her, her harming the clinicians. I mean, it's not helping the clients for sure. But I think the folks who struggle the most at this imposter syndrome, this sense of what do I do? I'm so, you know, where do I go? Those sorts of things is because we've not given folks a really clear method, like doctors get really clear methods, yeah. guidelines, what to do. What to do. And we just talk in this fluffy theory and we all get emotionally attached. Oh, I'm psychodynamic or, oh, I'm a satir clinician. And, you know, oh, I'm existential, whatever it is. And it's like this bizarre little religions we have. And we're not focused on really what works in the room. You said step one for you is getting the movie. So understanding the client's holodeck, being able to to watch, play the scene back, so to speak. And then step two is their interpretation. So understanding, you know, if we're playing a TV show scene, how those characters are relating. We saw the movie, but then we're asking them for the context. So you explain Mm -hmm. that as your cousin is doing the same thing that they always do. And so then wanting the interpretation of that behavior. Where do you go from there once you've gotten the movie and you've understood the client's interpretation? So what I, I so this is beyond a one hour workshop. I, I teach this method. It's like about 46 hours. So but to really boil it down, boil it down, I got to do a lot of simmer sauces here. Um, <clears throat> I do something that's called um, a four level assessment or conceptualization. But I do a really deep dive around whatever the problem is or in some cases, whatever the solution is, what we're wanting. It's just, you know, you can do the exact same kind of deep dive where, um, again, trying to use as little theoretical language as possible. There's, you know, I, I look at, you know, what's going on behaviorally. We analyze that. Then we look at what's going on emotions, the cognitions and the societal discourses, both around a person's identity as well as around the problem. You know, society has a lot to say about bad marriages, ADHD, autism, all those stories. So we do a really deep dive looking at that. And as you go through those four levels, whether you're doing the problem or like solution, um, it becomes so clear what needs to happen. And often in just connecting all of those dots, the clients, uh, so much shifts for them that, you know, they, you hardly need to do an intervention afterwards. I was, uh, last client I saw, uh, last Friday afternoon, she was just sitting there going, I, I, I need to process this because she goes, wow. She goes, I, I, you know, she just connected the dots. She saw how all those p- layers fit together and um, this problem, uh, you know, very difficult situation. Um, it just kind of unravels, you know. Harleen Anderson talks about it in collaborative therapy as just dissolving. It's like as you see how the dots connect, many people – will be like, I, I, I know what I need to do or their interpretation. They can't go back to their old interpretation because they've connected all these pieces. And so um, they just can't go back. And it was it was just a great way to end the week. Sometimes I'm like, why do I see clients on Friday afternoon? But um, it was very inspirational. But you just you could just see it in her face. It was just like she cannot go back to the old interpretation. And all I did was get a, a do a deep kind of understanding around the problem to help her see how she was connecting dots in ways that didn't actually make sense. And she can't go back to the old interpretation. And all I did was be curious. That's all I was. Part of your work has been 
really focusing on this idea of, of treatment planning and creating treatment that is maximally effective instead mm-hmm. of this idea. And, and I see this all the time as a documentation trainer. It's like we check some boxes or we come up with our treatment plan to reduce X behavior from this many times a week to this many times a week, but that it's impractical. It's just something that we did because Blue Shield or Anthem or Cigna or whoever it was said we needed to do it. How do you see treatment planning as fitting into all of this to be more effective instead of it being this thing that we have to do that has nothing to actually do with treatment? Yeah, it is It is unfortunate. And um, in terms of how treatment planning has evolved, I think, in our field, because there are these like very behavioral treatment plans that third-party payers need. And so I see that as... <sighs> a less joyful part of my work. Um, and there, a lot in a lot of my books, what I've tried to uh, do is to connect, to take that task we have from third-party payers and connect it to something that is of value, which is uh, connected to our conceptualization, the knowledge base in the field, our theories, and that's useful to us. Like, you know, if someone comes in and they're diagnosed with, you know, major depressive disorder, you know, reduced depressed mood is hardly anything you need a master's degree to come up with. I mean, that's like, okay, my, I'm telling you, my eight-year-old could, could write that treatment goal. So, um, so, but it's how are you going to treat that depression is the question. And you don't know how to treat it until you've really understood. I mean, depression is a great example of one where you really have to enter their holodeck to understand how to intervene in it. Because until you understand how their mind is making and interpreting their life, you don't know, you know, where to intervene with depression and particularly. And similarly with anxiety, you know, I recently had someone, you know, come to me, they were at a uh, OCD institute before the pandemic and they, they found me during the pandemic. And so clearly had been diagnosed with OCD, but when I actually entered her holodeck, I'm like, this isn't OCD. This isn't normal OCD. There's a little bit over there, but that's not your main anxiety. So it's so important to, even when they have official diagnoses, to go in and really understand from within to know how to develop your treatment plan because it becomes much clearer when you understand from within their world what it looks like. So when, and so when I write treatment plans, I really try to um, make it useful to me to understand what I'm going to be addressing. So, you know, like depression can, you know, be tied to, um, for example, a lot of not feeling, not having secure attachment or not having safe relationships. So, you know, then that's what my treatment goal is going to be around. It's going to be around secure attachment. And yes, third party payers pay for that. Yay. Um, So that's sort of, so you're, I'm attaching it. So I'm clear what that is. And I really try to just come up with two or three main life themes that I get from conceptualizing using the theories, you know, in the field that we have, or, you know, doing my four layer assessment conceptualization, um, where, and so, you know, it could be around attachment, it could be around setting clear boundaries, you know, it could, you know, it could be around whatever their self-talk, you know, whatever it is. And I, and that's what I track. So clients naturally will come in each week with the, what I call the problem of the week. And, um, but if you have a clear conceptualization, the problem of the week is going to relate to these one, two, maybe three themes max every single time, uh, you know, so, 
So the treatment plan, I try to really crystallize what is the interpersonal or intrapsychic dynamic that needs to shift or what needs. And so I just keep my eye on the prize, eye on the prize. They can talk about whatever they want, but boy, I'm working on setting boundaries. I'm working on, you know, whatever it is, the attachments, safe relationships, creating safety, um, allowing yourself to feel safe, whatever it is. Um, I just keep my eye on that no matter what they're talking about. And so that is how I find treatment planning useful to me because it allows me to uh, quickly take whatever they give me and focus my work and so that I'm always um, on task. As you and I are talking about this, I'm appreciating that there's also this element of kind of perfect world, which is really unfortunate. So you had said earlier on that in those first 10 years of somebody's career, that's when they really need to be investing in high quality education and building out their skill set. And it also hits up against the reality that education is typically not something that's accessible to people who are early in their careers because they have heavy student loan debt and they're oftentimes working in agency-based environments where they don't have the time off or the opportunity for fancy training, which they may. I know like I worked uh, affiliated through LA County. And so we had some training that was available that was pretty fancy and had a high, high ticket price because we weren't paying for it, you know, like the county was. But this mix, this mismatch that I've experienced working in agency-based environments where you want to have the time to really conceptualize this person's holodeck to create a treatment plan that is really comprehensive and thought well thought out, really deliberate from a clinical perspective. And then the reality for me, working as a clinical documentation trainer, boots on the ground, that oftentimes it's like, well, I don't have time for that because I'm responding to the person that's on the unit pounding on my door. There's an emergency because somebody threatened to do X, Y, Z. And that's all well and good that you're really cute about all this treatment planning stuff, but I can't implement that. To people who are are struggling with that, how do you guide them when it feels like you can barely keep your head above water with documentation requirements and returning phone calls of case managers and all that stuff when we're not in this slower pace of private practice? No, it's an absolute challenge. And I, I actually think um, like LA County, we're both in LA County, the documentation requirements are ridiculous. I, I know some of my students spend as much time doing therapy as documenting it. And that is just a poor use of public funds. And I know everyone wants accountability, accountability. And uh, <laughs> they have some people, I'm a big fan of using the Myers-Briggs, and I use it in a way no one else does, I believe. I've never found anyone who uses it the way I do, because I use it as a cognitive type. I, I try to understand how their minds work, but it's like they let the wrong Myers-Briggs personality type who into little, little details and counting everything. Like that's the wrong personality type was let loose, you know, on accountability. And it is, it is bad for clients and it is bad for clinicians. That said, so my advice, <laughs> um, and, and that is why I, I think we have to move to much more synthesized um, approaches to conceptualizing and working. Um, because that makes the documentation so much simpler. You know, if when, when people are like doing their conceptualizations, they're, they're doing, it's basically these four levels and you're going to find problems. You're going to see the kinks. I can't, I don't know how to describe it where the dots stop lining up, um, in two or three of these levels. And so, and then you can stay focused on that. Uh, and sometimes you can even, you know, well, sometimes you can almost choose depending on the client and the problem where the focus is. You know, so you need to look at these four levels. Uh, the other piece of treatment planning that I haven't mentioned is then the other half that I do is 
running it through, um, you know, an evidence-informed approach. And so looking at what works for d- different types of disorders. <clears throat> and that is something we all do need to know. Like, you know, OCD, the research is overwhelming, that exposure works. So, but if you're like, you know, I just do existential therapy and I'm going to do existential therapy for OCD, I actually would say at this point is unethical um, in most cases. I mean, if they have the classic textbook OCD, like talking about it doesn't work. And so looking at the existential angst behind it probably isn't going to make a difference. And I think we need to be responsible in knowing that. Um, and I think increasingly it's an ethical issue um, that we've never had to deal with the way medical doctors have. But I, I think we're at the point where we have to. So in terms of documentation, it's like keep it as simple as possible in terms of if you know, get good at boiling it down. So I think everyone, we need to think about simmer sauces, boil it down. What is the core dynamic that needs to change one or two? I try not to have more than two core dynamics with a client and to keep it simple, keep it very, um, um, and in in certain ways it becomes, you know, very repetitive. I'm telling you that if you focus on secure attachment and emotional regulation, you have covered most of your clients. Just those two goals really is at the root of most of what's going on with your clients. And so try to find the big grand themes and focus on that um, when you're doing your documentation. So, I mean, in every agency is, is very different, but, you know, all I write down is, you know, what were their medical symptoms in a progress note? You know, depression, anxiety, I use DSM language. What was, you know, write down how that changed over the week. Very simple. And um, what, and what I did about it, how they responded. What's the plan? Thank God I use a platform where it just kind of, I can cut and paste that plan from week to week. <laughs> uh, but that's it. And you don't need to go crazy. Um, I'll be honest, when I was trained a long, long time ago, in the last century, my kids are like, can't believe I was alive in the last century. I mean, the last century when I was trained in law and ethics, my, my, I will tell you, honest to God, my law and ethics... Uh, course instructor, he told us, uh, you know, this is before we type notes. He said, um, do it in messy handwriting that no one else can read. So if you're ever yep. on a witness stand, <laughs> you, you got that? Oh my God, yep, you got trained more recently. Wow. That's <laughs> woo, totally different, you know, but I, I do, th- I do write notes. Like if this were published, you know, on the front page of the LA times, cause I live in LA, um, would I, would my client, you know, be okay with it? And would I be okay with it? That's also the other thing thing I really try to focus on in terms of unless you know I have I you know I'm in private practice so I don't have the regulations and the requirements of an agency setting but that's also what I try to keep in mind but I I think just keeping it as simple and streamlined you know get very focused um and it it should be fairly repetitive Diane I'm glad we talked about this and for our listeners who haven't explored these already me being the documentation nerd that I am I have a number of my own courses that are available at podcast episodes as part of Clearly Clinical, some of which are actually teaching out of Dr. Gayhart's books. And so you'll hear me mention her. <laughs> We've also had other documentation experts come in and talk about ways that you can write notes more effectively and efficiently, understand concepts like medical necessity, and even sometimes the intricacies of billing if you're working with a third party payer. But so thank you for talking about that idea, because I think for people who um, are in those high caseload environments where things 
are moving really quickly, it can, I think that contributes to the feeling of imposter syndrome because yeah. you barely have time to catch your breath enough to think through what's happening with this person and why is it happening and what are we going to do about it that you're moving on to the next crisis. And I know that was a feeling that I had and I've talked to other clinicians, but so I'm glad for what you're saying, which is you can boil it down sometimes to these really fundamental concepts and use that to help guide the, um, the treatment and, and what you are going to do clinically. I, I appreciate the simplicity in that. Um, Dr. Gayhart, you and I could absolutely keep talking about this topic because there's so much here to say, as you know, because you've created whole curriculums around this. Um, yes. When, when it comes to what you're suggesting and how we simmer it down, get through the alphabet soup and really focus on the effectiveness of what we're doing, look at the client's holodeck and create interpretations and then kind of work within the gentle manipulation of those interpretations. What other resources do you recommend to listeners? Like here's some time where you, you know, here are basically the best sources of bang for your buck to get better at these concepts. So I hesitate a little bit to um, name specific theories, um, but you know, I think you need to look when you're thinking about, especially if you're going to invest in what you're going to get trained in, you really need to ask yourself, it's not just about what you find interesting or what works for you, because therapists are much more psychologically minded than their clients. So a lot of the theories that I, f I found very interesting or I find interesting aren't necessarily what my clients need or want. And so I think you really need to focus on what do my clients need is, I think, a real important question. And then the other one is, what really um, works for me? And so I do a lot of work, like I said, around the Myers-Briggs cognitive types. And what's fascinating is I have discovered that certain cognitive types like certain theories because it works with how their mind mm, works. Absolutely. And so it's important to also know how you think to understand, understand your own holodeck well enough to know how you conceptualize well. And, um, and I think the two most, well, they're all important. Um, but so you're looking for a very robust theory that can handle, you know, more complex cases. And so for, you know, and I guess, and, and also one that clients are going to resonate with. So, so things like emotionally focused couples therapy, dialectic behavior therapy, um, I think are pretty robust theories. And you do need to know how to work with relationships and children, even if that's not your specialty, because they're going to come up. So you have to understand parenting, I think, to do this work well, because you're going to work with people who are parents. Um, so, so looking for, um, robust theories, the theory, you know, the method that I've developed, um, also is it's made to work with his, all clients, whether it's individual or couple, it's like, it's a very, it's a large framework. So you're looking for orientations that have as broad a framework as possible. Sometimes you're in an agency environment and they're going to give you a super specific EBT. That's fine. That's great. It's still good. You're still learning good stuff. Whatever you learn, learn to do it really well and learn how to get really great outcomes. Because I love talking to therapists or we're all, whatever you got really good at, and in some ways, and I know we're coming now, it may say it's kind of a paradox. If you learn any theory really, really, really well, like down to the nuts and bolts, understand it, you do, it makes it much easier to understand other theories. You begin to see how things connect. I mean, I think it's 
a total para- it is so bizarre to me and I've had people comment on this that I mean I'm trained in postmodern collaborative therapy which is totally unstructured totally like philosophical right that's like but I learned it so well and you know on the narrative and this you know this postmodern stuff I cuz that's when I came of age as a clinician that's what was like I was I got to be part of the cutting edge of that so I learned it really well and what's so bizarre about it is by learning that really well I, I am able to understand structural therapy and strategic and psychodynamic so much better. And I can see how it all works. I see how the pieces connect. So that's another piece of it. Whatever you do learn, master it. You, you know, really do a deep dive into it until like it clicks. Cause, uh, you know, the common factors kind of show that if you can master delivering those common factors through any of these theories, you can do a, a, a good job at what you do. Wonderful. Diane, thank you so much for spending this time with us. For our listeners who want to learn more about your work, your training, your books, can you take a quick minute to tell people how to um, follow you and get in touch with you? Absolutely. So um, so I have a institute I have created. Um, it is called the Institute for Therapy That Works because I didn't want to give it any theoretical language so that everyone feels invited, safe, and welcome there from any theoretical orientation. Um, and it's about a method. And, it, and it's so that is, you'll find that at um, the URL is therapythatworksinstitute.com. Um, you can also uh, learn about me at diannegayhart.com. And I have all my books there. You can also just go to Amazon, as I think you can find me um, for my books. But I have books on family therapy theories, documentation, um, counseling theories. And I do a lot of work in mindfulness. So and if you just want something for fun, I have I, I did write a book called Mindfulness for Chocolate Lovers. So that was a, a fun book I wrote last year that is just pure fun, but a lot of wisdom in there. A lot of the um, in fact, what it has in there is a lot of the stuff we don't teach in the theory in our in our field about how to be effective. Awesome. Thank you again for spending this time with us. It's been really centering and enlightening. Thank you so much for having me. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.